We are back today in our sermon series in Luke. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 10. We'll begin in verse 25. The particular text I want to read today is on page 10 in your bulletin. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jer Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you has a friend, who has a friend, will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence or shamelessness, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. We pray now for that spirit, Lord, to work in our hearts as we hear this text in Jesus' good name. Amen. Last Sunday afternoon, I had the uh, opportunity to speak with a Christian educator about the decline of reading in our world. It used to be there were these things called books, and you'd pick up a book, and you would open it up, and you would enter into the thought journey of that writer, and you would travel with that writer through the thought journey to the end of the book. That is largely in decline now actually quite stunningly in decline, and instead we now habitually do something else. Rather than traveling on a thought journey in a book, we sort of skim and click our way through an array, 
quite a vast array, often, of links. You know, our data, data links, news links, story links, video links, meme links, etc. And we just kind of skim and click through these. And someone has suggested that perhaps our brains are actually being rewired now to function more as search engines. Kind of just moving quickly through a lot of data links to collect things that we're looking for, kind of like an AI algorithm. Well, whatever else, whatever else one might say about this kind of new way of approaching data, it really, really is bad for reading the Bible. Because, you know, these stories, the Samaritan story, the Mary and Martha story, I assume these are probably quite familiar to you, they are not standalone links. You know, click, Samaritan link, go be nice to people. Click, Mary and Martha link, have your quiet time. That's not how they work. They are woven into a thought journey that we call the writings of Luke. And I want to just think about that a bit today. As the text opens, you remember what Jesus is doing? Let's, let's notice the weaving. Jesus, as this text opens, is celebrating. And the reason he is celebrating is because the lights have gone on for his disciples, and they have seen and believed, because they've watched it in action. God's kingdom is coming on the earth. The Lord of heaven and earth has begun to rule in this world through his son, Jesus. And he's bringing peace, and he's bringing healing, and he's throwing down the devil. And Jesus is excited that his disciples, they're getting it. Their eyes have watched the king from heaven welcoming sinners, being hospitable to sinners, welcoming the hungry and the needy. And their hearts, as they've watched this king at work, their hearts have been opened by the Lord to welcome him, to welcome this welcoming king. And they have enjoyed his hospitality themselves. They have been drawn into his hospitality, and they have savored it, and they've watched him extending it to others. And then he's given them the unbelievable privilege of extending it themselves, sending them out on mission to feed and welcome and heal. And so it is not a surprise the next thing we get in Luke's gospel are three hospitality stories. Every one of these stories, the Samaritan, Mary and Martha, and then the pesky neighbor, they're all hospitality stories, but I want you to notice something. The point of these stories is not, as I hope to show today, go be hospitable. Although that is here, that's not the main point. The main point is actually deeper. The main point of these stories I want to show is that to share our king's hospitality, we have to receive it. To share the king's hospitality, we have to receive it. That will hopefully mean more to you by the time we're done. But the first story is a story not for the disciples, but for Israel's leaders. Because Jesus is celebrating, and mid-celebration, it looks like, there in verse 25, he is interrupted by a lawyer. Not the John Coco-type lawyer, although that would be quite fun. But rather, a lawyer in the sense of a teacher of the Torah, right, the Law of Moses. This guy's a, he's a, an intellectual. He, he teaches the Torah, the Law of Moses. And it doesn't look like this man is malicious toward Jesus necessarily, but we're told explicitly he's testing Jesus because he sees an opportunity here to make Jesus publicly take a side in one of the debates among the rabbis. And the question that they're debating is, what must I do to inherit the resurrection the eternal life that God promised to his people Israel. And what's probably in the background of this is Daniel chapter 12, where God is talking to Daniel, and he's kind of given Daniel a big vision of what history is going to look like between when Daniel lives and when Messiah comes. And one of the things that he tells Daniel is that 
there will, um, at, at that time, referring to kind of the latter days when Messiah comes, at that time, your people, Israel, shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so this, this writer, or this, uh, this lawyer, he wants to know from Jesus, what's your view on what does it take to inherit that everlasting life, that resurrection that God has promised to Israel? Now Jesus models great wisdom here for, for Christian leaders, and that is he does not take the bait. I, I know a little bit about this. I mean, you know, I don't, I'm a tiny little nobody compared, of course, to Jesus. But, I, you know, anyone who's ever led in a Christian community, you do get people asking these questions. Like, they kind of want you to take a side. And he just doesn't take the bait. He turns it right back around, and he says, you know, so you're a lawyer. <laughs> uh, tell me, what does the law say? Tell me what the Torah says. And this lawyer turns out to be knowledgeable. You know, he's a studied fellow, and he summarizes the law of God in the two great commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, exactly, do that. Now, the Protestants, you know, we, we're Protestants, right? If that means something to you historically, Protestants immediately have a panic attack about this. Oh, my goodness, what is Jesus saying? Is he saying this guy can somehow do enough good works obeying the law that he can eventually kind of earn his way into what we call heaven? You know, we have this, all this, people get all nervous. I mean, it's unbelievable the ink that's been spilled trying to explain away what Jesus says here. Well, you know, we can probably calm down a bit because to start, I mean, Jesus, what he's saying, actually, at one level, is completely true. If you did obey the Torah, if you did obey these two commandments perfectly, you would obviously be eligible for eternal life. <laughs> but Israel's entire Bible assures everyone who's listening to Jesus and assures us that will never happen. Everything about Israel's Bible says nobody's ever going to perfectly love God and love their neighbor. And in fact, this lawyer does not think he is some sort of sinless, you know, perfect law keeper who, you know, can just, on the basis of just sheer perfect obedience, qualifies for eternal life. So what, what is Jesus saying when he says, you're right, do, the, do, do what you just said, keep those commandments and you will live. What is Jesus actually saying? So I want to ask you guys this question. You know the answer to the lawyer's question, so what is it? Step aside from the so story here for a minute, and I'm going to ask you guys, if someone asks you this question, you evangelical Christians, what do you have to do to inherit eternal life? What's the answer? You know, don't let me hang in here. I can't. Somebody? Trust in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. That's what you would say to him. So is it possible that what Jesus is doing here is he's pointing this lawyer to believe in himself? Is that possible? Well, I think it is very possible that's what he's doing. When, he, when the lawyer says, all right, love God, love your neighbor, Jesus says, yes, do that. Keep the Torah. What this lawyer needs to inherit eternal life is not to do something, but to receive someone, to receive God's Messiah, and if you think about it, that is exactly what the law of Moses was meant to prepare Israel for, right? That's what the whole, think about God for thousands of years. He gave his people, and faithful Israelites knew this. They knew that God had given them this Torah, this instruction as a tutor, as a schoolmaster that would eventually lead them to Messiah, because it would certainly show them their need of a Messiah. I mean, the entire point of the animal sacrifice system was that we're sinners who can't just kind of walk into God's presence. We need to be cleansed. And those animal sacrifices were clearly pointing forward to something that where we could finally stop offering sacrifices, and we could just have that final day of atonement, and it will be done. The debt will be paid. It will be finished. 
And all the Sabbaths are pointing to this time of rest to come. And all the way back to Eden, we've heard about this coming king. And so God just kind of schools his people through the Torah. Loving God for faithful Israel was just simply continuing to trust in this God who was going to send the Messiah. That's really what it was. Stay with the God of Israel. <laughs> Don't go worship the gods of the nations because he's going to bring you the king. He'll bring the sacrifice to end sacrifices. He'll bring the Sabbath to end Sabbaths. So love him, cleave to him. And loving your neighbor as a faithful Israelite who trusted in Messiah, what was loving your neighbor? Well, that was just what faith looked like in the way you treat other people. Of course you're going to be good to them because you're, you serve a good king. And it's preparing Israel for their Messiah. And so really when Jesus says in verse 28, you've answered correctly, love God and love your neighbor that way, the way the Torah teaches, obey Torah, it will prepare you for your Messiah and for eternal life, and under his breath, sort of, ultimately for me. So I think in, in one sense, he's just really pointing the lawyer to himself there. But then the lawyer, he doesn't seem to get it, and he exposes now in verse 29 his motives behind the question. Because he's not actually looking for an answer here. He is not ready to receive anyone or anything. He's not asking out of a sense of need. What he wants to do is justify himself. What he wants to do is show that he has been doing these things that the Torah requires, and he has done them quite enough, thank you. He is eligible. He's good. He will inherit eternal life because of what he's done. And so if you think about this, if you're checking the boxes, love the Lord your God, check. Love your neighbor as yourself, check. Can I just say, it really helps when you're checking that neighbor box if a whole bunch of people in your life do not qualify as neighbors. Does that make sense? Like, I love it if God says, Ben, love your neighbors yourself, and I can disqualify like 80% of the people in my life as neighbors, I am so much better off. I'm good. I can, I can check that box a whole lot better. And so that's what he tries to do. So, I mean, really, I mean, Jesus, you know, who's my neighbor? And Jesus' response is this hospitality story. And I want to suggest that he's doing in this story just what he did with the Torah. He is actually pointing to himself. Because what we usually, I, there are such lame readings of the Good Samaritan story. Most people read the Good Samaritan story as basically a Jesus version of, go be nice to people. We read it just as more law. Like, be really, really nice, even to the people you hate. And we kind of just make it extreme law. Here's an even higher standard. Love people you don't like. Do that, and you're, you're good. Well, Jesus does give a higher standard for sure here. This is love that this lawyer is not ready for at all. But I'd like to suggest to you that he, he gives this higher standard actually in the story by revealing his love, his hospitality in this story. Because if this lawyer does not receive Jesus' love and Jesus' hospitality, he cannot actually go and do likewise. This is a complex little story. Let me just give you some hints of what's going on here. This is a parable. And what that means is, as the Jews, they were used to parables. When they started listening to this parable, they're immediately thinking, what's the meaning? Like, this is not actually telling a story about real characters. It's a parable in which the characters are revealing some things. They stand for things. And so they're immediately kind of dialed in. But what is weird about this parable is that it begins with these words, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now that is almost, un I think it might be unheard of in any other parable. That is a an incredible level of specificity. You know, you have a man walking down a road in a parable, but you don't have the markers of the geography. He's going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
And that would have immediately triggered something for the Jews of this time. You we as Americans might be able to relate with this because you have certain things that if I mention certain geographic markers, you have certain resonances. Like if I say, my wife and I are going out west, the west has a certain resonance for Americans. If I say the words, I was driving past the Birmingham jail, that's going to trigger a, a historical resonance for, certain, a resonance for certain people. If I say, I was on my way to ground zero, that immediately triggers certain historical resonances for, for us here in New York. And for these Jews, when Jesus said, a man is on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, that is a road, it's about 18 miles, that leads from the city of Zion out to Jericho, where Israel crossed the Jordan, and the end of that road is going east into exile. That's the road the captives marched to exile when Jerusalem fell about six centuries earlier. That is the road that King David fled when he was exiled from the city when his son Absalom staged the coup and overthrew him. And this would have really triggered an emotional reaction in this audience because for the Jews of Jesus' time, what we miss as we read through their story, they still felt so deeply that exile was still going on. Because true, they suffered under the Babylonians six centuries ago, but then they suffered under the Persians, and then they suffered under the Greeks, and now they're under the heel of Rome. And even though they're back home in their land, that trauma of that journey into exile is still a live issue for these listeners. And they're immediately picking up, like, what's this about, this story? What is very interesting, what I thought of as I was reading this and thinking about Israel's exile, is the priest and the Levite who don't help. They don't heal. They just pass by on the other side. Because there's this very interesting moment in Jeremiah's prophecy where he is talking to the religious leaders of Israel, and he says, how can you say we're wise? Now, Jesus is talking to a lawyer of Israel. How can you say we're wise? And the law of the Lord is with us. Behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they've rejected the word of the Lord, so what wisdom is in them? Everyone is greedy for unjust gain, from prophet to priest. Everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And so there's even here this kind of flashback to Jeremiah that these religious leaders are looking at the horrible condition in which the people of God are, and they're not doing anything. They're not healing this wound because, honestly, they're bought into the system with Rome. They've kind of allied themselves with the oppressor. But there's not just a hint of Israel's dark past as this story opens up. There's also, I think, a glimpse into the very near future because there is a neighbor who is going to walk this very road. Now, Jesus, we learned last time, he's on his way to Jerusalem, and in a few chapters you're going to see there's a very specific emphasis in Luke that he starts at Jericho and makes his way to Jerusalem from Jericho. And there's going to be a neighbor who's going to walk this very road now to Jerusalem, and what is he going to Jerusalem to do? To take Israel's sin and their curse and their exile on himself. And when he walks this road, he's going to be beset by robbers who want his kingdom as their own. And he's going to be stripped. And he's going to be beaten. And he's going to be left to die. And he'll be untouchable to the religious rulers of Israel. And then there's a really crazy sort of note here 
when the Samaritan rescues this figure of exiled Israel, and I would say of the suffering Messiah, when the Samaritan rescues him, he pours oil and wine on him. Do you know what you pour oil and wine on in Israel's scriptures? A sacrifice. A sacrifice will come by which the curse and misery of exile will be removed. So that's going on here, and that's all very rich and complex. But it, there's even more to the parable. Because if that victim lying on the road embodies the plight of Jesus' audience in Israel, and I would argue we could even go broader, embodies the whole human plight after we were cast out of Eden under God's judgment, if he embodied, that, that victim embodies that plight of Israel and the human race, this Samaritan, remember, there are figures in parables who represent God, like the father and the prodigal son, you know, the father clearly represents God. And if you look at this parable, it's pretty clear this Samaritan is a figure in the story who looks so much like the way God responds to suffering. And the way that righteous men and women in the scriptures of Israel respond to suffering, like Boaz, you might think of, or, or Ruth, you know. And, and he's that kind of figure. And he comes with compassion to this exiled figure, the, su the sufferer on the road. And unlike these leaders who just pass on by and do, do nothing, this figure is here to heal, but he is a Samaritan. I mean... Do you guys know what a Samaritan is in, in the New Testament? So you guys will remember that when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam turned out to be a horrible king, and the kingdom split apart. And one, two, the tribe of Judah stayed with David's line, but ten, the ten other tribes went off to the north. And they just, they forsook the temple in Jerusalem, they forsook the line of David, and they set up golden calves, and they worshipped them, and they just became idol worshippers. They were a mess. They never had a righteous king. Nineteen kings, not one righteous in the north. And in the year 722, the Assyrian Empire took their capital city and took them all away into exile, and they became intermarried with the pagans, and eventually came back to the land, and they settled in this land of Samaria, and the Jews hated these half-breeds. And the Samaritans, because they still clung to, in many ways to their false religion, and to the various ways they kind of taken on the ways of the world, they hated the Jews. Hated. I mean, there was violence between these people. And Jesus is picturing sort of a godlike figure who looks like Israel's God in his character, but he is a Samaritan. And the audience would have just probably wanted to spit on the ground at the mention of a Samaritan. And what they would have felt in this story is how they would have felt it in their guts, how much hostility and enmity this character had to put aside to show mercy to this victim. He had every reason to leave this Judean to rot and die on the road of exile. But he not only comes through all that hostility, he reaches in compassion toward this Judean. The extravagance of his care, he fully restores this sufferer at his own expense. And you can see, I mean, he gets like a month's worth of supplies, and he, he makes sure this man is not just, you know, sort of immediately relieved in his wounds, but his, he has time to fully heal and fully be brought back to life. What a picture of the love of God. And once again, there is going to be a neighbor, an embodiment of this, who will journey on this road like the Samaritan, and who will embody the character and the heart of Israel's God, one, a neighbor who will show infinite mercy, to those who hate him. 
want to spit on his name. And he will do everything for them to restore them completely from exile, to bring them fully back to life at infinite cost to himself, far more than even what this Samaritan pays. And he will, in doing so, reunite God's, God's flock. He will bring all of his flock under one shepherd, the north and the south. That's another resonance that's going on here. There'll be a reconciliation of Jew and Samaritan. And when he leaves for a time, he will entrust his ministry to another until he returns. Very interesting language foreshadowing Jesus and his work. And so when Jesus says in verse 37, after this man acknowledges that's the real neighbor, Jesus says, yes, go and do likewise. You asked me what neighbor you must love. There is a neighbor you must follow. You receive him. You receive his mercy. You go and follow him and do as he does. I think he's pointing this man to himself more than anything else. And in pointing him to himself, showing him the way to a love that this man, this lawyer, cannot even imagine. And the problem today as we hear this text is that we, you know, modern people, we're so used to Jesus' influence, we actually think it's normal. People today, even people who don't worship Jesus at all, think, they just assume that this is how people ought to behave. They assume that this kind of love is good. The pagans in ancient times, would have had no such assumption. If you meet an enemy on a road who's dying, guess what you do? You let him die. That's noble behavior. We have this whole, you know, soft heart thing going on in the modern world because of Jesus, because of his influence. But we assume that this kind of behavior is good. And we assume we all want to be like this, right? I mean, you imagine, you, you could talk on a, a college campus where there's actually a lot of hostility to the gospel today. If you were to say, you know, should we take care of people who are suffering? Should we minister to, you know, to, do you guys want to take care of those who, you know, who are abused and, and exploited and, and, and all of that? I mean, people would be, of course, this is what we ought to do. We all want to be like this. And because we all want to be like this, we think we're all trying to be like this. Jesus is showing this lawyer a love he does not have. If he had this kind of love, he wouldn't have asked his question. This kind of love, the point of the parable, this kind of love comes only from Jesus. This kind of love comes from being loved by Jesus, being ruled by Jesus, being apprenticed by Jesus. Paul will later call this the mind of Christ. And can I just say to you, beloved, so we can search our hearts, Jesus is talking about a love you don't have either. You don't have it either. We love people we want to love, and so we think we're loving. Do you realize that about yourself? And I'm, I'm there with you. You love people you want to love, and do you think you're loving because you love people you want to love? Our king here is showing this lawyer and showing us another whole level of hospitality that flows only from receiving his hospitality. This is love that will move past our selfish indifference. I can't be bothered. I am busy. It can move us past our religious standoffishness. I don't want to be around those people. They disgust me. It can move us past settled grievances, settled hostility, because it's God's own love. And it can move us to merciful, bountiful, joyful, costly, sustained, hospitable love, even toward enemies. That's the love of Jesus. It's almost like we get a new self. It's that radical. But to share the king's hospitality, we must receive it. 
But then there are stories for Jesus' disciples. We'll move through this more quickly, but there are also a couple stories here for Jesus' disciples, because it isn't just lawyers who've got to receive Jesus' love if they are going to share that kind of love. It's disciples, too. And we come to Mary and Martha. Now, Martha is a stark contrast to the lawyer. She loves Jesus. She knows who he is. She wants to honor him. She's not trying to get out of loving her neighbor. She is eager to love her neighbor. She wants to be a lover. And she loves Jesus. But we learn something from Mary's story, her hospitality story. I did quite a lot of thinking about this this week. There is a mood change in our hospitality when somehow in our loving others and our being hospitable to others, it somehow becomes all about what we're doing for Jesus instead of what Jesus is giving to us. There's a mood change, especially when our all-important work for Jesus drives out Jesus' life-giving word that he wants to minister to us. Can I ask you guys something, and it's obvious. If the Son of God himself is sitting in your living room and he is in a talkative mood, don't stress yourself trying to figure this out. Here's the question. Is it more important to hear what he has come to say to you or to make sure we've got enough veggies for dinner? Now, don't strain yourself trying to answer that question. If the Son of God wants to say something to you, is it more important to receive or to get stuff on the stove for dinner? But Martha is distracted. She cannot hear Jesus. She can't enjoy the fact that he is here. She is actually not in a state to receive what Jesus has come to give to her. She's not in a state to discern what Jesus values in this situation at all. And for you who are disciples of Jesus, as you think about how important it is that you receive the king's hospitality if you're going to share it, can I ask you something about your good works? I know you're engaged in a lot of good works. You're raising families. You're out in the world seeking to be a witness. You're serving in various kinds of mercy to people who are in need. I mean, I know there's a lot of good works going on, but I want to ask you guys a question. Does Jesus need your good works? Does Jesus need your good works? He does not need you. He does not need you one little bit to do anything he wants to do for his kingdom. He will use you, but he does not need you at all. Jesus does not need Martha to make dinner. He just fed 5,000 people, thank you very much. He can probably handle a house full of people. He's good. He doesn't need you. He didn't need Martha. He doesn't need me. And so, beloved, here's the mood, here's the mood difference. Then do not serve Jesus like he needs you. Don't serve him like he needs you. Serve him like he is with you in all of his infinite love and goodness and power and serve him like he is eager to provide for you because he is and serve him like he is with you with a life-giving word for you because that is actually the state of your service. Martha just needs to look around the house and say, you know what, Lord, what do you want me to do? Because you've got this. You're here. The power and love of God are here in you. You say the word, we'll have dinner. What do you want from me? You're the provider here, not me. Because if that is not the soil of our service, enjoying the presence and the power and the love of Jesus, the fruit 
is not going to be hospitality. If that is not the soil that our service is growing out of, their fruit is not going to be hospitality. It's going to be frustration. Not just with other people like Mary, but frustration with Jesus. Because she, she scolds Jesus. You know, this is kind of heavy. This, this dear woman, this sister of ours, gets so annoyed that Jesus is not helping her help. And I just love, even as he loved the lawyer, I love the gentleness of Jesus' response to Martha after she scolds him for not caring about her burden and, not, and just letting her sister Mary sit there listening when there's dinner to make. And he just says so gently to her, Martha, Martha, I, I see your anxieties. I see your troubles. But won't you come and hear me with Mary? Because it's my word that gives life, not your bread. It's my word that's necessary, not all your running around serving. It is not you who give to me, Martha. It is I who give to you. And if you want to serve me and serve other people well, you come receive what I am here to give. To share the king's hospitality, you must receive it. And that brings us to the pesky neighbor. This will be real brief because it's pretty obvious. There's this pesky neighbor. He goes and asks a friend at midnight, I, I've got someone who just showed up at my door. I need to show hospitality to this person, but I don't have any bread. Can you give me bread? And basically, the, the thing to remember here is that behind Jesus' hospitality, my whole point in this sermon is we must receive Jesus' hospitality, but behind Jesus' hospitality is the Father's hospitality. He who receives Jesus receives the Father. And this is a story about the fact that our Father, Jesus' Father and ours, his hospitality toward us is just extravagant and it's bottomless and it's jovial and that is the ultimate soil out of which our hospitality grows and yet Jesus knows we doubt our father we doubt his heart for us and the evidence of that is not just the frustration that we see with Martha the evidence that we doubt our father's love and provision and hospitality the evidence is we just do not ask him very much we do not ask him for very much in our service to him this friend goes and asks his friend to provide what he needs to give. And whatever the human motive is in the story, I mean, maybe Jesus says, look, maybe he wouldn't get out of bed because it's his friend. But whether it's because he's afraid of being shamed in front of the entire neighborhood that's hearing this row at his door, or whether he's just you know, quite moved by the fact this guy will not stop pounding on the door and he's just shamelessly trying to you know, get this man's attention, for whatever the human motive is, the point is he will do this. He will get out of bed and give. How much more God? The, the entire point of this little story is that the Father's love for you and me infinitely exceeds human motives. I mean, if you guys come and bang on my door at midnight, the reality is for whatever reason, I'll probably get out of bed and give you something. But I will grudge it a little bit, not going to lie, if it's midnight. God is not like that. God is just ready to go with his hospitality. I mean, y'all, sinners, know if your son asks for an egg, you don't give him a scorpion. You've got that figured out, and you aren't particularly good people, Jesus says. Your son wants a fish, you're not going to give him a snake. How much more, God? So ask for what you need for yourself and for the others you're seeking to serve. Just ask. And the crowning gift that your father wants to give to you, verse 13, is the Holy Spirit. That spirit who hovered over creation and brought the cosmos out of unformed, unfilled, watery mess. That spirit 
that blew over the waters and brought Noah's ark to rest. That spirit who hovered over Jesus and created a living, holy humanity in Mary's womb that hovered over Jesus in his baptism and launched the mission of Messiah. That spirit the Father wants to give to you. And there's a beautiful little verse in Israel's Bible that says, God speaking to Israel, he says, I will put my spirit within you and you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And we're all the way back to loving God and loving your neighbor. You want to love God and love your neighbor the way the Torah says you need the spirit. And the Holy Spirit is what the Father wants to give. To share the king's hospitality, we must receive it. I don't think it's any secret to you guys. My, I think I can say this, my number one, pastoral vision for Trinity Church is that we will be a hospitable church. More than anything, that's what I would like to see. I would like us to be a community who really believe in hospitality and who, because we believe in it, we practice it. We practice it because we believe in it. A church that is practicing warmth. A church that's practicing being interested in people. A church that's practicing welcome, practicing opening up our homes because we believe in this, practicing discerning what is needed here to heal this broken life and then giving sacrificially to bring healing to that life and just heaping on an extra helping whenever we can because just because God, that's how God is. I'm totally with Ivan Illich who once wrote, I do think that if I had to choose one word to which hope can be tied, it is hospitality. I would say in 2022, this is crucial. If there's a word to which hope can be tied, it is hospitality, a practice of hospitality, recovering threshold, table, patience, listening, and from there generating seedbeds for virtue and friendship and radiating out for possible community, for rebirth of community. I'm with Ivan on that. Because that is the kingdom. So is it possible? And the wonderful thing about these stories is because of Jesus, it's totally possible. This kind of hospitality is possible for those who have been neighbored by Jesus. For those like you, like me, who have been on the receiving end of his mercy and his bounty, like the Good Samaritan, those who have received that, they can. if you've been neighbored by Jesus, you can be a neighbor like Jesus. It's possible for those who know it is our privilege like the innkeeper, there's a reason why St. Augustine said the innkeeper is the church. Jesus gives his ministry to the church when he goes away until he returns. It's our privilege to carry on Jesus' neighboring ministry. When you know that, you know he'll make it possible. This kind of hospitality, it is possible for those who sit with Jesus' word, like Mary. It's possible for those who know that God is a father who just loves blessing his children. And who, because they know that, they're like cheeky little people always banging on the door of the Father to do what he loves to do, which is give and bless and provide. And they just ask and ask and ask and ask and knock and seek. It's possible to be a hospitable people if the Father has given us the Spirit. And he has. And he has. So let's ask the Father now for the Spirit to make us such a community. Father, we thank you for your work of loving us, and we pray that more and more by the Holy Spirit you will make us a church that to one another and to the world is seeking to show hospitality with a love that can love even our enemies. 
And so, Lord, let us be lights in this very dark time. In Jesus we pray.